Open your Bibles with me to John chapter 15. And this morning we'll look at a, a passage of Scripture that I'm going to title, The Friends of Jesus. And as you remember, we've been journeying through what is called the Farewell Discourse. This discourse began at the inauguration of the Lord's Supper. It carries all the way through the high priestly prayer. And it ends with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is the evening before he is arrested and subsequently tried and then taken to the cross. Now, throughout this farewell discourse to this point, Jesus has been emphasizing several key themes as he prepares his his disciples for his departure and for their soon-to-begin apostolic ministry. They really don't have an idea about what this apostolic ministry is going to be like. Their lives are turned upside down by the reality that Jesus is about to leave them. And so he has been preparing them for both his departure and for this ministry that they are going to undergo as apostles. So throughout this discourse, Jesus has stressed obeying him as proof of love for him and love for him which results in our obedience to him. In this discourse, Jesus has promised to us the Holy Spirit who will empower them and us to love him, to obey him, and to, as we looked at last week, to bear fruit in our service to him. He has promised them that he will grant to them anything they ask for in his name as they abide in him, as they stay closely connected to the vine, because he is the source of spiritual life, and Jesus is the source of our bearing fruit in and through our lives. Jesus has also promised them His peace and His joy as they live out this life of love and obedience. You know, sometimes we think about the idea of loving someone and obeying someone, and it brings to our minds a lot of uncertainty. What is it going to mean to love them? What is it going to mean to obey them? And we don't always have a real sense of peace in that nor do we have great joy in that. But this is what Jesus says to them, is that they will know His peace and they will have His joy made to the full as they love Him and as they willingly serve and obey Him. Let's look in our Bibles at John 15.10 as the springboard to what we're going to talk about a little bit more today. John 15.10, Jesus says, If you keep My commandments... You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Now here in our passage, it begins in verse 12 and will end today in verse 17, although this is a part of the longer discourse, Jesus is going to talk about specifically what it means to obey His commands. How we are able to abide or remain in His love. So if you say, I want to remain in the love of Christ, I want to fully abide in the love of Christ, i got good news for you, because Jesus is going to tell us how to do that. Let's read together in verses 12-17. through 17. Jesus says, This is My commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are My friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. 
You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you that you love one another. So as we look at this passage of Scripture, and as we think about what it means to be the friend of Jesus, we're going to look at this in four main points. Number one, the disciples of Jesus, the friends of Jesus, share four things. Number one, we share the highest command. We see this command again in the beginning part of verse 12. Beginning part of verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another. We share in this command just as the apostles shared in that command. And what you and I need to remember is that it is the highest command. Jesus said that if you want to remain in My love, then you are going to love one another. This is how we remain in His love. The highest command is that we love one another. Now this is the second time that Jesus has said this this evening in the, doors, in the discourse. The very first time He said this was immediately after communion when He was finished washing the disciples' feet. Love one another. We see this verse in John 13.34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you that you also love one another. One of the central themes in this discourse is loving Him and obeying His commands. Jesus is going to repeat this over and over and over and He does so to stress the high degree of importance that He places on this command. Now, Jesus here identifies very specifically what He means in this highest command, and that is that we love one another. We are to love one another. Every time Jesus uses the word love in this discourse, He uses the word agape, which we know to mean divine love. It is the highest form of love. It is the highest and most perfect expression of love. And it is love that is produced by the Holy Spirit as He does His work in us and He produces spiritual fruit because we are remaining closely connected to the vine. This command is very simple to understand, but it is incredibly difficult to live out. Would you agree with that? Don't we theoretically know that we are to love one another as Jesus has loved us? We think about the challenges of loving our spouses with the same kind of love that Jesus has loved us. We think about loving our children with the same kind of love with which Jesus loves us. And we bring that idea, that command into the church. And we say, now wait a minute. Isn't there an amendment there? Isn't there an asterisk? Certainly, God, you cannot expect me to love all these people the way Jesus loves me. Have you ever felt that way? Maybe you haven't said that, but I can assure you... (laughs) that there is great difficulty in loving one another the way Jesus loves us. Why is that so? Well, let me burst your bubble. You and I just aren't as lovable as we think we are. We look in the mirror and say, well, I'm not perfect, but hey, I'm a pretty good guy. I do this and I do that, and, and I don't do this and I don't do that, and I go over there and I won't go over there. All in all, I consider myself to be a pretty good person and I just can't begin to imagine, even for an instant, why everybody doesn't love me the way I think they ought to love me. 
Well, the reality is that you and I are blinded by our own sinfulness, our own selfishness, and our own shortcomings to the extent that we cannot understand why everyone doesn't love us. You know, many times when someone doesn't love us in the way that we think they should, we blame them. We don't blame ourselves. Well, you know, that Bob, that Bob's not a very loving guy. He doesn't love me the way I think he ought to love me. And Bob's probably saying, not this Bob, just Bob in general. Bob's a very common name. (laughs) I got no axe to grind with Bob. (laughs) But this fictitious Bob might say, well, you know that Dennis, he doesn't love me the way I think he ought to love me. Something wrong with him. The problem is, we aren't as lovable as we think we are. And not everybody's going to love us the way we think they should. And more often than not, that creates friction in our relationships. We have such an inflated view of self that we can't even for a moment understand why everybody just doesn't think that we are the cream of the crop. The reason interpersonal relationships are so difficult is because you have two people who are deeply flawed, who are incredibly different, and generally have a self-interest in who they love and how they love. I want you to think about that. We have a self-interest in who we love and in how we love them. And many times, the way we love others is based upon our idea of their worth. Sometimes it's based upon the idea of what I might get back out of this love. And there can be ulterior motives in the way we love other people. You know, one of the reasons that marriages fail at the rate they do is that these two deeply flawed people come into this relationship and say, I expect you to love me the way I deserve to be loved with no understanding of how difficult they are to love. That's true for all of us. The difficulty of living out this command does not excuse us from pursuing it. You and I are obligated as the children of God. You and I are commanded by Jesus Himself to love one another as He has loved us. We read in Romans 13, verses 8-10, through Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this you shall not commit adultery, You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now that's all cap, not because Scripture is screaming at us, but because it's a direct quote from other Scripture. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now Paul is speaking to Jews who were obsessed with observing the law. And what Paul is doing is he is summarizing the entirety of the law in this command to love one another. Now, do you think, do you think Paul just thought that up on his own? Do you think he thought one day, you know, this will solve all the problems in the synagogue if I just tell him to love one another? Well, no, this is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 27, 37 to 40. Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. 
This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now listen to what he says. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What Jesus is saying is that there is a sense in which you can take everything that the law has said, everything that every prophet has ever taught, and you can summarize it in these two things. Love God first. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to get hung up on the minutia of the commandments of God, just stop and say, okay, let me start with this. Let me love God first. And then let me love my neighbor as myself. Let me love my brothers and sisters in Christ the way Jesus loves me. You can summarize the commands of Christ under these two commandments. How believers relate to one another is of critical importance. Let me say that again. How believers relate to one another is of critical importance. When there is a lack of love within a body of believers... It can lead to all kinds of division and resentment and bitterness. And these things will destroy the fellowship within the church faster than anything else. Broken relationships result from our unwillingness to submit to the command to love one another as Christ has loved us. A lack of love will destroy our fellowship. It will destroy the witness that we have in our community. It will destroy and sidetrack us from what is our purpose. It will destroy and negate our impact in the world. When the world has heard about the love of God and how Christians are to love one another, and you profess to be a Christian, and they go, you know, I don't see that guy loving anybody but himself. I don't think I want to sign up for that. We can undo so much of our testimony and our witness by our inability and our unwillingness to love that we can even begin to imagine. One of the great sad truths within the church today is that there are many, many church members and Christians who are known more for their grumbling and their griping and their complaining and their murmuring than they are their love. This is what we need to ask ourselves. This is what we need to really evaluate is what am I best known for in my church? Is it my love for others? Is it my willingness to come to the aid of others? Or is it the negativity and the bitterness and the complaining? All those kinds of things that don't reflect the love of Christ. Well, the cure for all of this division, for all of this dissension, for this lack of forgiveness, for this weakness within the body of Christ, is very simply love. It is loving one another with the divine love that Jesus has commanded us to have. How do we love one another that way? Well, you and I can't produce that. We can't fabricate that. We just can't come into the church and say, okay, today I'm going to love everybody. Our ability to love is a byproduct of the work of the Holy Spirit, which is the byproduct of our intimate relationship and connection with Him. If Jesus is arm's length to us, if the, if the desire in our heart to honor Him and serve Him and to please Him with our lives is just kind of a distant thought, you and I don't have a chance 
of ever loving the way Jesus has commanded us to love. Because love is the fruit of the Spirit, which is the result of God doing His work in us. Now, the Apostle John, who is authoring this Gospel that we've been looking at, has much to say about love in his other three epistles. In 1 John 3.10, he says, By this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. 1 John 4, 7 and 8, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Now we can read these verses, and we can think that maybe John's just trying to solve a problem, or he's trying to squash a group of people who are fighting with one another. But the reality is this, is that John had to wrestle with this command himself as he's hearing these words around the communion table, as he's walking along the roadway to the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's going to in just a few hours look upon the cross, he's going to understand very, very clearly what it means to love as Jesus loves. So number one, we share the highest command, that is to love one another. Number two, we share the highest standard. The highest standard is found in the second part of verse 12. Love one another just as I have loved you. Jesus is the standard. Now, when I say that Jesus is the standard, that is designed to be a contrast to our being the standard. You know, we can look at somebody in our church that we have some affection for, and we say, well, you know, I don't like that, and I don't like that, and I don't care for that, and I wish they wouldn't do that, and I wish this, and if they could change that, and, and we make this long list of things about other people, and we make that list, and that list diminishes our desire and our capacity to love them because we have become the standard. Not Jesus as the standard. You know, it dawns on me as I'm saying this, that if Jesus, who is the holy and the righteous Son of God, can love you and I, who are so not the holiness and righteousness of God, and He can love us with a complete and everlasting and a perfect love, should that not become the standard for our willingness to love one another? If He can love us that way, why do we find it so difficult to love others that way? Well, because we determine the standard. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for, you, up for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Now, you and I don't have the capacity to love one another perfectly as Jesus loves us perfectly. But we are to strive, we are to work towards emulating and imitating that love in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit as much as possible. You know, sometimes that means before you get out of your car and walk into the church, you say, God, help me to love so-and-so today with the kind of love that you have for me. 
God, help me to look beyond their faults and their failures and the offenses that they brought to me. Help me to love them as you love them. If we pray that, do you think God is going to do that? If we make ourselves aware of the little issues that keep us from wanting to love one another the way Jesus loves us, do you think God is going to work on our hearts in that way if we're praying that He does so? Well, absolutely He will. Love between believers is marked by a selfless devotion to meeting one another's needs. You know, when you walk in this door today, you came in with needs, didn't you? What are those needs? Do you tell anybody what those needs are? You know, I'm really struggling this week. It's been a very hard week for me at work or at home or in school or wherever it might be. I'm really beaten up. I feel defeated. I don't have a sense of God's presence and victory in my life. Oh my gosh. How can I help you? Can I pray with you? Can we look at some Scripture together? Yeah, that'd be great. But we come into the doors of the church and say, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. How are you? I'm fine. Everything's great. We have needs. And the purpose of the body is to help meet the needs of one another. And sometimes a way that we express a selfish devotion to meeting someone else's needs is that we deny our own needs for the purpose of trying to meet the needs of someone else. Our love for one another is marked by a willingness to forgive one another. Oftentimes when somebody has offended you and you see that person, you aren't reminded of their need to be loved, of their brokenness and their fallenness. What you are reminded of is that thing they said or the thing they did, and by golly, I'm not going to ever forget that until they fill in the blank. God, help me to love them the way you love me. Help me to love them as you love them. Love for one another is marked by commitment to deny ourselves, to give up our rights and our preferences when it creates conflict with other people. Now, I would imagine that I could say, we're going to go do this. How do you think we should do that? And we're probably going to get 10 or 15 different ways that that ought to be done, right? And so some people will say, well, I don't like the way you think it should be done. I think it should be done my way. And if you don't do it my way, then it's wrong. And if you're going to do it the wrong way, I don't know if I want to help you do that at all. What's the problem with you? And we're never willing to give up our own preferences for the betterment of someone else. Well, the standard in how we are to love one another is sacrifice. We sacrifice ourselves. We sacrifice our wants, our needs, our desires, whatever that thing might be. We sacrifice for someone else. Verse 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus has been talking at length about loving him and remaining in his love and obeying his commands. And he's talked about loving them as he loves them. And he is about to show them what the epitome of love is. Right? This is less than 12 hours from the cross. And Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus is talking about the cross, and he's talking about the cross as the highest form of sacrifice that one could ever show to another. 
This is a sacrifice that Jesus is going to make for his friends. And this becomes an example of the kind of love that Jesus possesses for us. Think about this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He, the Father, made him, Jesus, the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus gave up his life, and he died on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin to demonstrate his love for us. Now, it's very, very likely that you and I are not going to be asked to lay down our life for our brother and sister in Christ. I doubt very seriously someone's going to come in and say, take a bullet for your brother, and that's the expectation. Probably not going to happen. But the point about this is not that we do take the bullet for someone else, but it's that we recognize the amount of sacrifice that is involved in expressing love and living up to the standard of love that Jesus has shown us. Let's remind ourselves of some things that the Scripture says. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Love is patient. I'm going to add love here. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. You know, this is not written in our Bible to be read at the beginning of a wedding ceremony to remind a husband and a wife of how they are to love one another. This is written in God's Word to the church at Corinth for believers throughout all of eternity to understand what is the expectation of the kind of love that we are to have for one another. There are approximately 60 verses in our New Testament that deal with how we are and how we are not to relate to one another. They're called the one another verses. Let me read just a sampling for you. This is a very partial list. There is this command to love one another, as we've just read. It occurs at least 16 times. We are to be devoted to one another. We are to honor one another above ourselves. We are to live in harmony with one another. We are to build up one another. We are to accept one another. We are to care for one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to forgive one another. We are to be patient with one another. And on and on and on and on the list goes of what love is to look like in the lives of God's children who have been eternally saved from their sin. We are to love one another as Jesus loves us and He is the standard of the love that we are to have. The result of our love for one another, Jesus told us at the Lord's Supper, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Was Jesus blowing smoke? Was He just trying to stir up some kind of emotional sentimentality? Was He trying to create some kind of brotherly bond that would help them through difficult times? Jesus was telling them, Jesus is telling us that if we really want the world to know about the love of Christ, then you and I have to love one another the way He loves us. To the degree that we are able to do that, others will see something so radically different in us 
that they are going to say, tell me, why do you love me the way you do? I've not been that kind to you. I've not done anything to help you. In fact, I've tried to make life kind of difficult for you. But I don't understand why, why do you love me the way you love me? If we can't love one another, how does the lost world ever think we would ever love them? The world knows little to nothing about sacrificial love. The world only knows selfish love. It knows conditional love. It knows love based upon how I value and view your performance. You've done real good this week, Joe. I really love you a lot. You've been a good boy. And the, and the opposite is true. Well, you know, Joe, you haven't done all the things that I needed you to do, wanted you to do, hoped you would do, desired for you to do. I don't think you're deserving of my love. That is sinful at its very nature. We are to love as Christ loves us, and the standard by which we love is His love for us, and that is expressed through sacrifice. Number three, the friends of Jesus share the highest bond. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now when we read these if-then clauses, we read them to be conditional. Well, if you love, then you will be. And it's not what Jesus means by that. What it really means is that since you are my friends, you will do what I command you. Why doesn't it say it that way? Well, we're translating one language into another. And to try to stay as close to the original language as possible, it doesn't always express it in the clearest way possible. That's why we have to study. You are my friends because you do what I command you. So the highest bond that we share is friendship with Jesus. The highest bond we share is not between our spouse. It's not between our bestest buddy or our BFF in the world. It is our bond with Jesus. That word friend, in the way it's used here, means friend at a court. It's an expression that is used if you are a friend of the king or if you're a friend of the emperor. It describes this inner circle or the very trusted helpers, that very limited group that somebody in a high-profile position can really, really depend upon. What Jesus is saying is that you will be close to me and you will have intimate access to me because I view you as my friend. Jesus' friends are informed of his thinking. They enjoy his confidence. They learn to obey with a sense of privilege and with a full understanding of their master's heart. Everything that Jesus has told us to do has been prefaced by who He is, what He has done, and what He desires for us. There isn't just this blind command to love one another. Well, gee, I wonder what that means. How do we apply that? When do we apply that? Are there any conditions for that? What if I don't want to? We understand what Jesus means when He says that we are to love one another as He loves us because He sees us as a friend. We have this very, very incredible privileged bond with him. So we demonstrate our friendship with Jesus by obeying his command chiefly to love one another. Now Jesus expresses this friendship through a contrast with how masters related to their servants. And this is why he says in verse 15, "No longer do I call you slaves, 
For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Now, in Jesus' culture, in the biblical era, slaves or servants usually had zero idea of what their master was doing. They had no relationship with them. There was no intimacy. There was no shared heart, no shared purpose. They didn't know what his business was. They didn't know his dealings. They didn't know where he was going. They didn't know what his goals were. All they knew was, my master says, go do that, and I go do it. My master says, stop doing that, and I stop doing it. But that's not the way Jesus relates to us. Jesus relates to us as his friends because we know the heart of our master. We know his purposes. We know his plans. And while we are his servants on this earth, and we are to live a life of subservient obedience to him, he relates to us differently. As the friends of Jesus, as the children of the Father, as the body of Christ, we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ because of this shared bond that we have as the friend of Jesus. Now this last thing that we share together flows out of this friendship, out of this privileged relationship with Him, and that is this. We share the highest purpose. Verse 16, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. You know, our purpose is not to get married and raise a family. Our purpose is not to go out and have a a career in the world and make a name for ourselves and, and contribute some great product that makes people's lives better. Our purpose... Our purpose as the children of God is found in this intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. It's expressed in this verse 16 in three ways. Letter A, the purpose of knowing Him. The highest purpose man can ever have is to know the God of this universe. We have been chosen by God. You didn't wake up one morning and say, you know, my life's in a mess and I don't like the way it's going. I think I'll go find out more about this Jesus character and see what he might do for me. Didn't work that way. He chose us while we were still his enemies and gave to us the capacity to understand who he is. He gave to us faith to believe in who he is and through the work of the Holy Spirit allowed us to become the children of God. He chose us. Now, in the Jewish tradition in the Jewish culture, if you wanted to learn under and train under a rabbi, you would go to that rabbi and say, most most holy respected rabbi, I would like to study under you. I would like to devote myself to following you and to observing your teachings. Will you allow me to be your disciple? Jesus turns that upside down and says, I chose you. You didn't choose me. He chose us to know him. God has chosen us for salvation and we responded to His choosing because He chose us first and drew us to Himself and enabled us to know who He is. Now the second purpose in this, this second of the highest purposes we have, letter B, is serving Him. 
He says, but I chose you and appointed you to go. That word appointed means set apart or sent. He didn't choose the 11 that are now here since Judas has left. He didn't choose us just so we could occupy the church and and habitate in heaven one day for all eternity. He chose us so that we would serve Him. He set us apart. He appointed us to be His servants. As a part of the inner circle of Jesus, as a part of what it means to be a friend of Jesus, we have been set apart by Him to serve Him. Mark 16.15, He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This is our going. This is a significant part of our purpose. It is to take the truth of the gospel message, the love of Christ, to save man from his sin into all the world so that others can know the truth about who he is. The Christian life is not a club for retirees or spectators. We have been given a purpose, and the purpose is to do the Master's work, and a part of that is evangelism. Now, the third purpose that we share together, let us see, and that is bearing fruit. Verse 16 in its entirety, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So for us to live the Christian life, we're to live it in such a way that Christ lives His life through us and produces spiritual character and spiritual conduct that would not only bear fruit in our lives, but would bear fruit in the lives of other people. And since that fruit would remain, it's probably implied that this is talking about the conversion of the lost, is that the bearing of fruit that remains is what we do on this earth for the Master in evangelizing and discipling and shaping and molding the lives of other people. To fulfill the Great Commission by living out the Great Commandment. What is the Great Commandment? We love God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. And we love one another as ourselves. Go into all the world and share that love with them. That is the Lord's business. Now notice the promise that Jesus makes again. I believe it's the third time He has said this in the discourse thus far. Verse 16, tail end of verse 16. So that whatever you ask in My name, He will give to you. Not a blank check. Not a Santa Claus wish list. Ask whatever you want. I'll just, I'll just, I'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. It's not a name it, claim it promise. In the context of bearing fruit, of loving one another, of obeying His commands, of serving Him, of doing all that He's called us to do, anything that we ask that furthers that purpose in our life, He's promised to give that to us. So if you and I were to pray, Jesus, would you help me to die to myself so that I can love others the way you love them? Do you think He's going to honor that? Yes, He will. Do you think if we pray, God, help me to recognize my unwillingness to love other people? Do you think God's going to help us break free from that? Yes, He will. The capacity with which we ask those things and have those things granted in our life is directly related to how closely connected to the vine we are. 
If your experience with God is just this meaningless, empty, dutiful religious expression, you'll have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you understand what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus the Son, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you've got an idea about what I'm talking about here. Verse 17, Jesus says, This I command you, that you love one another. Do you think this was important to Jesus? Do you think this was a significant emphasis as he's getting ready to leave and as he's going to, in some 40 days, initiate their apostolic ministry? Oh, you better believe it was. Do you think it's important for the church today? Oh, you better believe it is. You and I will never love to the fullest extent of the love that Christ has for us. We can't. We just can't do that. But you and I are to grow in our love for one another as the Father does His work in our hearts and in our lives. We are to willingly cooperate with that work. We are to deny ourselves and die to ourselves in order for that work to be performed in our life to the, to the degree that we don't love as we should love. It's an indication of how disconnected we are from the vine. When you hear the command to love one another, you just kind of roll your eyes and say, here we go again. Disconnected from the vine. Pray with me, would you please? Father, we're thankful for your love for us. We know that it is perfect. It is, it is beyond description. It is greater than any love we can ever begin to understand or imagine. And you have called us to love one another with that same kind of love. Father, we acknowledge our failure in doing that. And I pray that we would become very displeased with our spiritual condition as you make us aware of the lack of love that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ within our own families. That we would take very seriously this command that gets repeated over and over and over in the teaching of Christ. Father, help us through the power of your Spirit to love as you love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship him. Thank you.